Africa Climate Conversations. The podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the Africa Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwe. Now, I'm so sorry this episode was supposed to come by last week, but due to poor network, I was not in a position to roll it. But today, we're talking about forestry in Zambia. And I'm going to let my guest introduce himself. My name is uh, Abel Siampale. I'm the forest program manager working for the Worldwide Fund for Nature at the country office. Uh, my main responsibilities is actually to provide policy guidance and coordination of forestry programs that are running within WWF, uh, including cross-cutting issues that relate to impacts on change of forest cover, emanating from human activities in agriculture expansion, settlement expansion, infrastructure development, and mining activities that all happen within the forest ecosystems across the country. And so in collaboration with the several other institutions, including government institutions, we actually exchange on how best we can support sustainable forest management. I've been working in the forestry sector for over three decades now, both from government and also my time that I've spent you know, within WWF in the past four years now that I've been working there. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much for finding time. The first thing I want is to just walk us through in terms of the ecological zones within Zambia. Yes. We have three main agroecological regions in Zambia. The far north of Zambia, we have agroecological region one. That's the, the belt which receives at least above 1,000 millimeter per year. And then we have agroecological region number two which receives rainfall between 800 to about 1,100 millimeters of rainfall annually. And then the third one is the far uh, south, which is agroecological region number three, uh, which receives less than 800 millimeters of um, annual rainfall. Uh, that, that is recorded. Now for two, there are two spaces. Uh, there is 2A and 2B. 2B is mainly to the furthest portions of Western Zambia. And then 2A, that's the central region, which is normally the biggest region. So if you do the average in terms of rainfall uh, within Zambia, then you are within the range of 900 to 1,000 millimeters average. If you take the upper maximum and the lower minimum to get the average for Zambia, and that is found within agroecological number two. Now, in the recent past, there has been studies uh, meant to make a contribution to the national communication that is uh, submitted every four years to the United Nations uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change. Now, those studies invited geomatic engineers, which is the field that I studied, to try and understand if there has been any shifts in these agroecological regions. And so the information, the input information that was used to actually study any possibilities of shifts were information on the temperature since 1920, the records that the Meteorology Department has actually been archiving. The contour regions of the entire country, Zambia, from the escarpment to the lower valleys of the country. To just try and see the pattern of how these variations in temperature readings, in rainfall and so on, could actually cause these impacts. And the actual rainfall patterns that I spoke to when I was describing the agroecological regions, because that's what describes these different uh, patterns of the agroecological region. Now, these three input information was used in a GIS environment to compute the boundaries of these agroecological region. And we noted between 1920 to 2000 that there has been some shifting to the north, meaning that the biggest rainfall pattern which is observed in agroecological region one has subsequently reduced towards the Congo Basin. Then agroecological two has now gone into the northern region, which used to have more rainfall, subsequently reducing the amount of rainfall recorded even to the furthest north, where we used to record more rainfall. Then the driest parts 
that were only restricted to the southern region have also moved slightly up, increasing the pattern or increasing the space where less rainfall was always recorded in the areas of 2020. So with that shift, we now wanted to understand what is causing these shifts. Is it just a natural occurrence or is it human induced? Now, then we, not, we, we started looking at the national circumstances. What are the activities that would cause these shifts in the agroecological regions? So we started studying now the issues of human activities in the far southern region. So the culture of southern province, which covers Before the- Before we get, let me get you short. When we're speaking about now these ecological zones, can you paint us a picture in terms of these areas? What are the key major resource for Zambia and the region as well that are emanating from these different regions. Exactly. So from the northern region, mm -hmm. uh, maybe by nature of rainfall patterns, that's where we have the main sources of our river basins. The Zambezi River starts in the far north, northwestern of Zambia, uh, specifically in Ikerenge district of northwestern province. That's one basin and that basin runs all the way down to the southern tip of Zambia, bordering boundaries with five other countries as it comes down south. The second basin is the Kathiwe, which also starts again in the far north, just slightly lower from the northern direction. The Kafiwe basin also flows following the Zambezi basin because the Kafiwe feeds into the Zambezi river as it also moves on to Mozambique. The third basin is the Rwangwa basin, which also starts in the far northeast of Zambia. And then it comes down all the way to some parts of southern region. And then there are smaller basins that uh, starts from the north, but subsequently goes into the Congo Basin and supports the inflow of water into the Congo Basin. That's the main pattern. Now, in terms of heights, the lowest point of Zambia in terms of land formation is actually in the furthest tip of southern region, just where Botswana, Zimbabwe, and Zambia meet in terms of boundary along the Zambezi River, exactly where you find the Kazungula Bridge. That is the lowest point in Zambia, which is only 230 meters above sea level. The highest point is actually in the Mafinga Hills, northern side of Zambia. That's the northern tip. So when you go to the lowest point, just when you start coming out of the lowest point, when you are driving to Livingston, where you find the Victoria Falls, just where the falls goes down, it meanders through some hilly land. The escarpment starts from there, and it goes higher up, up to the point I talked about, which is almost like 2,300 meters above sea level. So you have like a difference of 2,000 between the two points of heights in Zambia. That's the, the geomorphology of the landscape for Zambia. And you understand now the pattern of how these agroecological regions are formed across the space of Zambia. Now coming to the, the understanding of how these agroecological regions uh, have been you know, happening, we needed to understand the anthropogenic activities, the human activities according to these regions from the north to the south to understand what could be influencing the shifting of the agroecological regions to the north and not to the, the south. south yeah. So we discovered the pattern of land management in the southern region, particularly covering most of southern province and western province, is different from the central region and subsequently different from the northern region. The northern region the practice on land management or on utilization of forest, they pollard the trees. They don't cut the trees. They only debranch the, 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 the trees and leave the trees still growing, use the branches that fall down after cutting, and fire those to create ash, to, which fertilizes the soil where they grow cassava okay. as the main crop in the northern region, a traditional crop. That, that is grown in the northern region. So the trees come back and shoot. They don't die out. So you expect very good forest cover 
still being in the northern region with pockets of isolated Chitemeni system where they cut and shift, which is also referred to as shifting cultivation. To the central region, the pattern of land utilization, there is a combination of commercial farming, not to a larger extent. Of course, that's where we have um, the largest um, farming blocks which are organized. So the, the land conversion there is one off because commercial farmers would clear one piece of land and utilize it extensively for a longer period of time because yeah. they are able to, you know, uh, uh, they can afford to get inputs and so on. Then with a few pattern of where people would actually clear off some forest to utilize um, it for agriculture purposes and so on. But to the far southern region, we have more peasant farms combined with commercial farms. Larger spaces of land are cleared to pave way for peasant farming. And this is where we have people who are pastoralists. They keep cattle, but they also do extensive agriculture. In the western region, where there is agroecological 2B and 3, they are actually farmers keeping more cattle, but growing cassava. They don't open up a lot of land for agriculture expansion because mainly the Zambezi Basin provides fishing opportunities. So their livelihood is along the river line. They don't cut on the main land. They only practice mainly fishing and also cattle rearing. Now to the far southern region, you will notice that uh, land conversion accelerated between 1970 to the year 2000, where all the commercial state-run farms were given to the local people to share as settlements. So there was massive settlement expansion, which was meant to increase food productivity in terms of agriculture, to the detriment of the integrity of the forest cover. And so when the families multiplied to some extent, mm -hmm. there was no more land left where communities could actually go and open up new land. All the land was covered by peasant farming. And so the new families could not find space. So there was now in-migration that started happening to the central region and now to the far northern region. Meaning the push for these farmers is targeting these sources of the river basins. That's the biggest threat that you see. If you captured an image for Zambia, you would see that the far southern image for Zambia, you would see that the far southern region of Zambia, forest cover is less in terms of canopy cover, averaging in the central region and still showing a lot of forest cover to the northern region. That's where all access wanting to cut more land are actually going to. That will entail even converting the entire land space in terms of loss of forest cover as it has happened to the southern region. Meaning that all these river basins, the sources of the river basins, will actually be impacted negatively. And that will mean the water flow systems that support the developmental activities to the far south of Zambia will actually be adversely affected in a negative way. The mining activities... Before you go to the mining activity, I just want to still dwell in the southern region yes. and the community's practices. Yes. Because um, first to understand, before they moved in this area, so it was still an agriculture, it was not like fully forested. It was still for large-scale farming previously. Yes. Yeah? Yes. And then so when they came in, so does it mean that this area was not really forested or were there patches of land that were, that would be, were large scale um, irrigation that was done there, that they were given, but there were patches of forest that they were living within? There were actually several state-run ranches that had very good stock of forest cover. All those state ranches phased out and land was given to people. So people went in and opened up this land. So they were, there was actually very good forest cover before when this province was, able, was still able to produce sufficient maize for, to feed the whole country Zambia. But when the government wanted to develop the farming program for southern province, they gave away land which was protected in state ranches to individual households 
to farmers who actually started demarketing it to pave way for peasant farming. At that point, that's when the forest cover for southern province was all actually lost. Can we talk about the whole aspect of the practice, how the southerners cut the trees? The culture of cutting trees is completely different from the one I talked about where in the northern region, people would actually, you know, climb literally into a tree and, you know, the branch, cut the branches, and then use the, the branches for the ash and so on to grow their cassava. In the southern region, they don't climb the trees. They make sure the tree has to die. And the only way, the quickest way you can kill a tree is to ring back it. Remove a ring of the back around the trunk completely. That same season, that tree will all die. Because the capacity for it to get water from the ground, to take it to the leaves for so that the tree can continue to actually survive, will not be passing because it passes through the xylem uh, veins which are in the back of the tree. So the moment you remove that, then there's no connection between the root system and the leaves. Therefore, the tree will actually begin to die from the top, which is called dieback. So it will die from the top and all the root system will completely dry. And then they do that on a larger space of land. And for that season, when they're going to the next season, there will be no tree that will be left surviving. All the trees would have died. And what they do is they go now and fire the standing dead trees by putting fire around it, burning it to ensure that there's no more biomass left. It will only be ash for that tree which was standing. That way, their cattle can actually move freely when they are cultivating. That's the practice that is there. Now, that's the same practice that we are foreseeing happening in the central region where they have moved to because of immigration. They have taken that same practice to the northern region. And they are busy cutting trees in the name of you know, agriculture expansion, which is yes, we need to eat, but the practice is not sustainable because it's actually, it kills the trees completely. Explain to us the importance of a standing tree in terms of rain, mm. moisture in terms of retaining moisture in the ground, mm -hmm. and also recharging mm -hmm. or helping, recharging or pulling that water mm. from the underground the area, yes, yes, you know, yes. and ensuring the streams of water are running. Well, uh, there is actually a proven scientific uh, cycle that the trees provide to the rain cycle itself. The nimbus, the clouds that form strong patches of rainfall, which are called the nimbus, they get the water vapor, 80% of the collection of the nimbus clouds that provide rain. That water comes from the transpiration of the trees into the atmosphere. So when the trees are there, they are actually a link to the groundwater, which they actually support to actually have seepage, mm. good seepage into the ground. Absolutely. But the root system picks that same water, brings it into the trunks of the tree, and loses it through the stomata opening, through the process called transpiration. And that water vapor forms the nimbus. It's not the water from the open water bodies that create the nimbus, no. 80% of the rainfall that we have comes from tree transpiration. This is why in a desert you don't find sufficient rainfall. It tells you a story. A desert does not have huge cover of forest. There's minimum forest cover and their, their rainfall pattern is actually very low. Where there are huge forests, the rainfall pattern is higher. Just not far away from here, the Congo Basin. The rainfall pattern in the Congo Basin is larger than the rainfall pattern we have in Zambia. Why? It's because of the size of the, the forest cover they have there. They have bigger trees which are measuring diameter 5 meters. Some of them go as high as 80 meters high. In Zambia, the tallest tree is only about 23 meters. So the larger the stock of forest cover, the actually maximum rainfall you expect to have in that area. The reason why the agroecological region has been shifting is purely to do with the change the conversion induced by people who have cut the trees that were sustaining the microclimate that supports rainfall. This is why in the southern region, where we have lost trees over a period of time, the rainfall intensity is actually very, very low in a year. Sometimes it rains so much in a short space of time, causing flash floods more 
than in the northern region. Why? Because the trees that are there support the water seepage. Mm. You don't expect to have so quick soil erosion, the flooding systems, they are not there. But where you have lost the trees, you have water which is running in excess because there is no seepage which is happening. So there is excessive runoff of water as a result of loss of forest cover. So the trees play a major role in maintaining the rainfall cycle from the rains into the ground and back into the, the atmosphere. Absolutely. And yeah. I just want to know, while I was still there in terms of you know, deforestation, there yeah. is an aspect of concessions that are granted by government in terms of cutting indigenous trees. And yes. actually, the indigenous tree, um, do I really remember the numbers? In terms of the trees, I think, must be what diameter? 30 centimeters diameter. Yes, 30 centimeter diameter. Thank yes. you. The Zambian Forestry Department is giving concessions in terms yeah. of cutting trees that yeah. are very critical indigenous tree. That is rosewood, mm -hmm. uh, teak, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and a couple of other indigenous trees that takes a long, long time to grow. Yes. What is the impact of this? And actually, I was just talking to the Forestry Department and they are agreeing that the biggest challenge now they are seeing is that th these trees are depleting and now the only area these trees are remaining is now within the protected areas but mm. most of the majority areas mm. forestry areas these trees are depleted yes um there are two sides to uh, the forest concession mm -hmm. by practice timber harvesting should have been a treatment to a forest mm. it was meant to actually target the bigger trees that may be dying off at any time the standard practice was actually to control, um, to more or less like sustain the performance of a forest in terms of forest cover. So it was supposed to be selective cutting. That's one good side of forest concessions. The bad side that we have at the moment in Zambia is the illegalities that are involved in concessions. There are concessions that government don't give. Hmm quote-unquote, illegal concessions, people cutting where they're not supposed to cut. There is more illegalities than illegalities in terms of concessions. Now, what that means is that even the dimensions that are allowed to be cut are not followed by those who are actually practicing illegal timber harvesting. And also, concessions were given in specific areas where an assessment preceding the harvesting was comprehensively done and specific species that qualified to be harvested pre-marked for the concessionaire to cut. That control was there. At the moment, we don't have those assessments that are leading these concessionaires to cut the right trees that have been pre-marked for harvesting. So the illegalities around that has challenged the expected control of the forest performance. Because now cutting is happening everywhere, anyhow, without control. Coupled with the weaknesses that we have in policing and monitoring harvesting. The capacities in government in terms of monitoring timber extraction is not sufficient. And therefore, we have these activities going on, subsequently causing a threat also on the anchor species that should have actually been controlling the performance of these forests. So to that extent, the other side of things, it is indeed causing also a threat on how the rainfall cycle, the rainfall patterns would actually be in areas where these concessions are happening. Concessions were not given to every province for harvesting, no. There were specific forests and type of forests and type of trees that were allowed for harvesting. There was also an, a minimum allowable cut that was authorized in a year over a period of the license. But today, cutting is happening without any order. And that, yes, is a challenge. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about the dangers in terms of what we are looking at, yeah. in terms of all these critical water bodies, not just for Zambia, but mm -hmm. for basically all the, the entire Southern African region. There is a livestock keeping to the southern region. These are community members who keep a lot of um, cattle. cattle. Mm -hmm. To what extent are they damming in rivers, impacting the integrities of these tributaries that are feeding into the Zambezi Kafuza? Well, as a result of the, the excessive harvesting of trees in southern uh, Zambia, where they, they, they keep a lot of cattle, 
what happened was that uh, the perennial streams that we are feeding into the many rivers that we have in southern uh, province started drying and they became seasonal rivers. And because of opening up of land, there was excessive runoff of, of, of soils, soil sedimentation in many rivers that were in perennial. Now, that also caused uh, the loss of water that was meant for the animals. So subsequently, communities in southern province started asking government for interventions for them to actually continue to keep the cattle. And now the only option that government could give was actually to construct dams in many of those perennial streams that were running through and through. Meaning that the water flow, the free flow of these rivers was now subsequently even challenged more because of damming. So a lot of them have dams. In fact, in southern province, we have more dams, perhaps in comparison to all the other provinces. Why? Because we have larger numbers of, of cattle that need that water. And this is why almost every other stream has a dam in southern province. Communities the same. They have more boreholes in southern province than in any other province for the same reasons that rivers dried. Now, because of the larger numbers of, of cattle, if one cattle suffered foot and mouth disease, which is very contagious, and goes to drink in this dam, it becomes a source of infection for all the other heads of cattle that will come to that dam. And this is why the disease burden for the cattle in southern region is more than any other region seconded only by western province where there is also a larger uh, heads of cattle and now a bit in the eastern region but the provinces that are affected more on the contagious disease for foot and mouth disease is southern and western and government has banned movement of animals in these within the provinces and between districts you have to keep your animals within the district because if you move from one district to the other, you could be taking an animal which is already infected and it will also go and infect other animals. That, those are the dangers that the damming of the rivers, the loss of the forest cover, subsequently caused all these illnesses, including human disease burden associated with the cattle that they are keeping in southern province. All these are things that we have seen. Now, when you look at what is happening, you would think it's natural cause to a large extent. Mm -hmm. For me, even the climatic variation is as a result of the human activities on the ground. If we never lost the forest cover, would have not lost the perennial streams, there would have been no dams, there would have been less, if anything, the boreholes that people are using to, to abstract water from the ground. And there would have been no disease burden on the animals. Would have actually been, you know, selling our beef to other provinces. Right now, it's very difficult to sell your meat from southern province to any other. Because first of all, your animal will be suspected to have been, it's coming from a disease burden area. So the only beef that we are eating now is coming from commercial farmers that have actually treated animals better. In southern province, there's nothing. Interesting. And you're saying these are the same southern people now because they are farmers and they are pastoralists. Now they're the same people who are now not able to farm in a uh, southern region. But because these people have money, have cattle, so they're able to large cattle. Uh, if, if one family might have a whole uh, thousand cattle yeah. you know, from one family, that means this is a, they're able to offload them and actually be able to buy land in other districts. And you're talking about them moving now to the northern part, which is the source of major, major, major water, you know, this resource, shared resources. Yes. Let's talk about the danger. Are they going, do, do you, you were talking about them moving this same practice into the north? The danger that we foresee, like I indicated earlier, uh, is that if this practice goes to the far north, then it means they are introducing activities that, you know, change the ecosystems in the southern region. So we are taking the same practices to the far north, which is, whose forests are still actually uh, intact. So what that will actually entail is that there will be now disturbances of the actual sources of the, the river basins that we have in Zambia. Drying of those rivers, the bigger rivers, is actually on a threat because they will definitely begin to dry up. 
because that practice is not sustainable. It will actually challenge the integrity of the ecosystems in the far north. And that's the danger. So there's free from shifting of communities. Mm -hmm. We don't have any land use planned for Zambia. You can just start off from any part of the country. All you need is just to go and talk to uh, one chief that, well, I'm a Zambian. I would want some piece of land here. And the only thing pro probably is to, to pay some bit of royalty just to be received. Then they will give you a larger track of land. And that practice is going to actually impact the north to the detriment of the environmental management uh, integrity for the entire country. Because that's where our life is, is left now. So if these families shift to the far north, the danger is actually imminent and is coming anytime soon. Let's talk about mining. Most of these areas that are very critical for biodiversity mm -hmm. are areas that most of the time you'll find minerals are there. Let's talk about mining. Exactly. Um, first of all, from the mineral side of things, uh, chatting with colleagues from the area of geology, they actually indicate that Zambia, all of it to the full extent, is a mine, meaning the potential for mineral deposits are everywhere. Now, the only areas that quickly give you a quick indicator of what is happening or what is obtaining on the ground is where you still have forest cover. And the northern region is our main target for mining expansion in Zambia. Uh, Northwestern province, some 10 years ago, was not active in mining. But now, that's where we have the largest mines in Zambia, meaning that's the new copper belt mine because that's the region which actually connects with um, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm. So you know that the Katanga province from uh, Congo is all mining, and that's the same region which is where the Zambezi source starts from. So the threat for large-scale mining expansion is more to the northern region than to the south. So the south has its own share of land clearing. The north is going to have its own share of mining expansion. And by the way, it's not underground mining. It is open pit mining. Meaning, even when the license says you have the underground mm. rights, mm. for them to access the underground mm. right, they have to disturb the surface rights. Absolutely. They have to clear the entire space to get down. So there will be huge pieces of land that will be opened up to get to the user rights below. Is it That's happened? why the law does not make a sense to that extent if you are doing open pit mining. You give a license and you say we are giving you the user rights. Leave the surface rights to the communities. But for this person you have given the user rights for underground has no direct access to the underground unless he clears the top. All the large mining uh, that we have in Zambia Karumbila mine, which is one of the biggest so far, it's a trident mine, it's all surface. I've been showing pictures when making these presentations, the threats that are there on the river basins we have in Zambia. Mining is one of the huge drivers of deforestation in Zambia. And we know the areas that are already delineated, targeted for mining expansion. It's all open pit mining. Huge, large surfaces are opened up for the pits. Huge open spaces are opened up for the dump site where you go to put the, the residue. Huge open spaces are opened up for the tailing dams where after processing your copper, you have to actually flush the waste materials into tailing dams which are contaminated with the residue flow. So, if it is open pit mining, you have all these collections that are created at once. And then you also attract huge population densities because once people want to get business, but they also want to trade to those who have come to the mining activities. A collection of multiple activities brought by mining expansion. Yes, we need the money because that's the major income source. But I can challenge you that um, Forests is green gold if we managed it because it's a renewable resource that we could have actually exploited sustainably as compared to mining, which is a diminishing resource. 
So where we have had mines before, in some of the townships, it's a solid site today. The communities living, for instance, in central part of Zambia, which is Kabwe, up to today, there are actually families who are still experiencing deformations of babies who are born there because of the pollution of those areas. So you don't expect the mining activities to only bring in money. They are also going to actually introduce other effects in terms of health and environment within those areas where the mines are. By the way, most of these mines discharge their affluence into the river, Kafiwe River, which is the one that provides us the hydropower generation downstream, has those issues where mines throw their waste into the river. What will happen when these huge mines are opened up north? Some will be throwing into the Zambezi River. That will affect the economic activities along that river. Traditional ceremonies of tourism potential will actually be affected. The biggest tourism uh, ecosystem for the Kafiwe National Park, which is the largest in Zambia, will subsequently be affected. You will affect also the wildlife habitats there. You will affect the commercial farming activities along that river. The Nakambala Sugar Estates are anchored on that river. If it reduces in terms of water flow, even the sugar we produce in Zambia, we will no longer produce it because the water will actually subsequently reduce. Commercial farms that are actually dotted along this same river will not irrigate crops to provide the food that we need for us Zambians to eat. All these are some of the things that economically you actually connect to the loss of forest cover. That is going to happen as a result of agriculture expansion, as a result of mining expansion, as a result of settlement expansion, as a result of infrastructure development. Zambia, for your own information, uh, in the previous government, had introduced a very good program called Link Zambia 8000. That was a program which was meant to open up districts between provinces with main trunk roads. The government pushed and found the money and opened up about 3,000 roads. 5,000 is still pending. From the 3,000 kilometers that were opened up, the western part of Zambia, between Katimamuliro and Botswana, was connected to the other inland district like Senanga. What we saw was that the commercial concessionaires who were on the eastern side went across because there was an access road. Now, the impact in one of the second biggest national parks called Siomangwezi has been invaded by concessionaires who are cutting right in the national park. These are real issues. On one hand, you are bringing development, yeah. but because you do not have a plan to ensure that you have green belts for the areas you are opening up, the impact of access introduces illegalities in those areas. Now concessionaires have gone across and they are heavily cutting in forests that were intact for years. That's where they are now. And to control and manage those concessionaires, I don't even want to call them concessionaires, I just want to call them irrigo timber harvesters or something like that, because they are not legitimate. Everyone has taken an axe or there, a chainsaw there to go and cut in massive quantities of timber. Some of the sawmills you have observed on that road, a very beautiful road, there are no licenses there. People are just cutting. That's the solid site that you see. And selling to those sawmillers who are dotted along the road. So those are the legalities that are there. Go now to other provinces where there has been these nice trunk roads. Chaco is moving all the way from northern province, almost like 1,000 kilometers, coming to Lusaka for sale. You will find larger, you know, a number of bags alongside each of these trunk roads. There's massive charcoal bags now. What has brought all that? Access. It was well meant for us to have interconnection. Very good idea. Socioeconomic development. But on the other side of the socioeconomic development, which is well intended, it has pushed in the acti illegal activities into the forest space, where harvesting of charcoal is actually has become massive now. Well intended, 
But at the end of the day, because you do not have a plan on how you are going to manage the natural resources in those areas, the irregularity is happening. Let me ask you, in terms of the policies, is it that we're coming up with policies and we're coming up with development plans? Because Zambia has a development plan. Yes. And as policies, the Forestry Act. Yes. Is it that we are not implementing them? What is happening in terms of where the environment is now left for everybody to plunder? The intentions in terms of having all these ideas documented and then uh, plans uh, put together on how we can actually coordinate and implement, ideas are well documented. Very nice plans are there, very good acts, one of which a progressive one is the Act Number 4 of 2015, yeah, the Forestry the Act, yeah. which has now invited all stakeholders, communities, private institutions, mm -hmm. individuals to participate in sustainable forest management. Very progressive. But to what extent are we responding to those very good intentions is another question. We do not see proactiveness in a number of areas. Of course, it's government policy to support community forest management, which has performed very well, but in terms of sustaining the management of these community forest management initiatives is not very strong because mainly it's driven by projects such that at the end of the project the communities lose track of the management of those areas mm -hmm. and the danger is there's high likelihood to have a number of these communities deregistered by government because they will fail to abide by the agreements that were signed because those agreements were effectively signed when there was project support. So it must be government policy to ensure that we sustain the establishment of community forest management because it's a very good model to ensure that we have this sustainability strategy in maintaining the forests that are still there within the community areas. Because the asset, the capital asset for forests, they are actually being managed for the communities and on behalf of the communities. So when they become actively involved and they see benefits, then that will actually make sense. The danger that I see from a professional point of view is now the collaboration between different policies, mm. thematic policies. Mm -hmm. For instance, forestry department is actually encouraging sustainable forest management. Mm -hmm. Agriculture is encouraging sustainable agriculture. But the mechanisms to support sustainable agriculture are not sufficient in terms of providing inputs to farmers to use the same piece of land. The trend now is that as much as we encourage people to produce more, they are producing more on the basis of the area cleared. So that coordination between sustainable forest management and sustainable agriculture, there is a mismatch. Absolutely. You go to the police on uh, mining expansion. Almost the entire space of Zambia has been pre-planned for mineral exploration. You actually bring that into the space where there is community forest management. Mm. Even some of the community forest management areas are already pre-planned for mineral exploration. So you can see that policies are actually fighting each other without people knowing what is happening. I can't promote agriculture expansion where the other institution is promoting sustainable management of forests. Does it mean sectors don't speak to each other? Unfortunately, in terms of pulling technocrats together, mm. pulling resources together to implement core developed actions, mitigation actions, it's not there. We have a nationally determined contribution, which has three main mitigation actions. Sustainable forestry management, mm -hmm. sustainable agriculture, renewable energy and energy efficiency. Ask the institutions, the sectors, because the largest emitter of the greenhouse gas emissions in this country up to today is not the industries that we have. Far from it. It's not the waste that we actually uh, generate. Far from it. The biggest emitter is the AFOLU sector agriculture, forestry, and land use. So you expect that these sectors should sit together and go to the mitigation actions for us to contribute to the mitigation, to the reduction of emissions that we need to report by 2030 to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Are we doing that? 
as an NGO, we are promoting restoration of forests because that's the only way we can create a sink that will help reduce emissions from their forest sector. But at the same time, there is an institution here that is promoting food productivity. Mm. We all need to eat, yes. No argument about it. But how are we producing the food we need to eat? Is it sustainable? Maybe not. And this is why as an NGO, we are promoting smart agriculture, which is still sustainable agriculture. So that communities can produce sufficient yields from the same piece of land over and over the years without having to open new land so that we can actually keep the other areas to help what we are emitting from those pieces of land. But if the policies are not strengthened enough to ensure that we do not base our yield on the size of land cleared, then it means the two acts are fighting each other without us seeing the fight, but watching it from the impact of the less reductions we are supposed to make by 2030. Mm. The policies are good, but the implementation of those policies, of the plans, we are not there yet. I can assure you, we have the eighth national development plan now, yep. which is, uh, an, uh, which is a, a revised version from seventh national development plan. If you ask me today, I, 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 I can't pick out one item from that plan that has been achieved. Why? It's because of this sector indifferences that we still have where we are still operating in silos we are not bringing these policies to speak to each other no. we are not actually implementing because if we were implementing would have met in the field where i'm talking about sustainable forest management and the other person says based on what he is talking about me and agriculture i'm not going to give you inputs to go and in a piece of land that you are opening up then we'll control things better but so that's the what we need to do now, the good plans that we have, we need to ensure there is a stronger collaboration between thematic areas in the environmental sector so that we begin to speak to each other and implement co-developed mitigation actions, not in isolation. The capacities in these sectors is what actually challenges the performance of the good intentions that are there, the good plans that are there. So we need to focus on how do we build these sectors to respond to the issues we are expecting within the space of climate resilience? If the capacities are built, capacities could be in different forms. It may not necessarily be numbers of staff only, but also the quality of service that these the small you know, numbers can actually offer, meaning training, instilling new skills in these officers that are there is one way of building the capacity besides just the numbers because you can have so many people but the quality of uh, delivery is still low capacity also also can can come in form of financial support but even there you don't necessarily need to provide hard cash for some institutions to perform you could do, create means of these institutions to generate their own resources that's another way of building capacity you don't necessarily to bring, you need to bring in cash, but means for the institutions to be able to generate uh, resources from the, the, the activities they are doing, like traceability activities. How do you trace the extraction of timber? Where is it coming from? Who is producing? Where is it going? At what value? That system of traceability is lacking. We could actually introduce, not only in the forestry sector, even in agriculture. We need to, to have a traceability system for tobacco. Where are the farmers producing uh, this, this tobacco? Which pieces of land are they using? Are they opening up new land? That is traceability. It helps institutions get to know where activities are coming from. Several aspects that go into building this capacity. Also, providing information, key information, quality information providing a base where people can actually see what is there. The only way institutions can be helped is where you can say, this is what we are doing, and we can't do A, B, C, D for A, B, C, D reasons. You end there. You have just shared your story. There will be individuals who are looking for support. Where can we go to you know, provide support? But if there's no information provided, because we don't have that capacity to disseminate, then you will actually be acting as if you are alone. 
But if these institutions can be supported, then the aspects on them providing services on climate resilience will actually be supported fully. So for me, the key one is that capacity enhancement in these sectors in a number of areas that I've talked about. Not necessarily providing or employing so many people, bringing in so many millions. No, creating means for these institutions to be able to perform. That would be a critical area for me to focus on. The other one is ensuring that we look at what is happening now in terms of plans that have been laid down. The aspect to implement these actions could not maybe be on the basis that we don't have capacities to some extent in terms of numbers. It could be that the institutions are not collaborating. You need to bring all these key institutions to a round table meeting. How do we ensure that we contribute to the mother plan, the main plan for the country? We shouldn't submit issues in isolation of each other. I am a co-chair for the environmental sustainability pillar, which is pillar number three of the four pillars that we have in the Earth National Development Plan. But how I've seen uh, institutions posting their actions, it will be forestry, they are, they are pushing in their actions. They don't check what agriculture is pushing in. So for me, building a contribution to a plan should be on a round table where this sector, this sector, key experts push in their activities which speak to each other, not in isolation of each other. That is where we tend to, to appear like we are pushing our own agenda as sectors. For me, bringing this, this stronger collaboration between institutions would help change. And therefore, we'll be meeting the aspirations we want to see within the climate resilience. Because climate knows no specific thematic area. It impacts across several sectors. And the only way we can win for resilience is to bring these sectors to begin to coordinate and speak to each other, implement things together. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. I sincerely appreciate it. You are welcome. Right. Thank you. And that is all we had for you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Please do remember that you can access this episode and many other on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and every other podcast channel that you listen to your other podcasts. Also, you can access it through our website, www.africaclimateconversations.com. I will see you next week, but one. Thank you so much and keep it here. Kwaheri, my name is Sophie Mbogwa. Africa Climate Conversations. The podcast.